Well, welcome to Second City Live Stream. My name is uh, Jez Dingley, pastor of Second City. And uh, you're joining us in a series in the Psalms uh, called God, Are You There? Uh, prayers for Every Season of the Soul. And today we're looking at Psalm 62. So if you've got a Bible or a device, let's bring up that Psalm now. Um, I was just thinking that a couple of years ago, my wife and I were expecting our fourth child. And uh, whilst we were, uh, my wife was pregnant, we were um, in the process of waiting, my wife came to me and she said, I've had some bleeding and I think I've had a miscarriage. Well, this is maybe a very real thing for, for some of us who are watching. Um, and um, as soon as I heard that, my, my stomach started to churn up and over and I felt sick inside. I was, I felt powerless. Um, I, I felt um, concerned, worried, uh, anxious. Uh, so we booked an appointment straight away and it, the appointment, which wasn't very long, seemed to take an, an age to come around in that week. Um, but all that week, my heart struggled with being at peace. I wanted to do something to to change the situation. Of course, we turned to prayer and uh, we prayed for it. Um, but seemingly, um, from all external circumstances, I was unable to do anything that would change that situation. But as we read Psalm 62, we're going to discover there was something I could actually do, not to change the situation on the outside, but to change the situation on the inside what was going on in, in my heart. Maybe you've experienced similar circumstances or, or different circumstances, but similar experiences of just that removal of the inner peace and replacement with worry and anxiety. And it doesn't have to be just the big things in life. In fact, it's a daily battle to be at peace with our soul. Maybe we look at ourselves and the things about ourselves we don't like. Maybe we look at what we've done or what we've achieved with our, our lives. Or maybe we look at other people and we see what they're doing and what they're achieving. Maybe we look at our, our kids and we desire more for them or we want them to be more obedient to us. An internal battle for this peace, this rest, this silence. It's, it's a daily battle. Sometimes maybe we think, Maybe our experience is that the only stillness that takes place in our soul is when things are good. So how can we know this peace, this stillness, this rest, this silence in the midst of circumstances that are far from peaceful, far from still, far from restful, far from um, good? Well, last week we looked at Psalm 44 where David waited in hope. Sorry, David waited in hope when God was silent. This week, we're going to be looking at how you wait in hope and your soul is silent. David, in David's own life, he'd known times of peace. He'd known times of victory. He'd known times of joy. But then he'd also experienced personal failure, attacks from friends and family members. And we could say that Psalm 62 is in some way a kind of a testimony of what David learned in these difficult times about the soul's rest, the soul's stillness, the inner being being at peace and calm where all outside seems to be raging. So I want us to bring out five lessons from this psalm. Lesson one is this. We're just going to read them all so you can know where we're going. Lesson one, 
There are many reasons for our soul not to be still and silent. Lesson number two, it is possible for our soul to be silent in all circumstances. Lesson number three, don't put your trust in men or money to bring stillness or silence to your soul. Uh, Lesson number four, our soul silence is only possible when we trust in God alone. And lesson number five is this, God is good, listen to him. So let's um, start with lesson number one. There are many reasons for our soul not to be still and silent. If you turn to verses three and four, you'll see the context that David finds himself in. Again, one of the beauties of the Psalms is it's set in a real-life situation. And those situations are, are relevant today. They may be different, but the experience is relevant. And we see David here, no matter, we don't exactly know what the circumstances is. He's hiding in a cave. It could be Saul, it could be um, Absalom, probably more likely Absalom. But he feels like he's virtually on his own and everybody around him is seeking for him, for his downfall. This is very real and disturbing trouble that David finds himself in. He says this, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust me down from my high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their lips, but inwardly they curse. This text hints at the kind of cowardice of which people are seeking to attack him. All of you attacking just me. And it feels like he's being battered like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. There's a sense of unfairness with the circumstances that he finds himself in. And their means of attack is falsehood, speaking out of both sides of the mouth. They would love to see him thrown down like a leaning wall, under the pressure from the ground beneath. They'd love to see a total collapse like a tottering fence, battered down by the wind. These people seek to... Des- to um, is downfall by spreading lies. And there's two ways in which they spread these lies. The first way is they intend to puff him up. Bit odd, isn't it, really? But no, they, seem, they tend to puff him up so that they will place his trust in himself and his achievement rather than in God. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless me with their mouths. They say things they don't actually really believe in their heart. Why? To puff him up so that it might lead to it his downfall, but inwardly they curse him. One side of the mouth blesses, the other side curses. There's a very real battle going on inside our hearts and minds for this silence and stillness, this rest. And Satan does not play fair. I want to tell you that. Satan does not play fair. He loves to see a Christian, or a joint, Not just a Christian. He loves to see everybody being blown down um, and and, um, their lives coming to nothing. He takes pleasure in this. That's why uh, when we think about what wicked people take pleasure in, well, Satan is the one who incites them. Satan is the one who loves for them to do wicked things against one another. And he uses lies. He's the father of lies. On the one hand, he uses flattery. That's one of his favorite weapons. 
and uh, he'll, he'll love to whisper it into your ear to tell you about yourself, particularly in circumstances where he's then going to uh, curse you out the, side of your, out the other side of his mouth, where he's going to tell you the reason why you need to flatter yourself is because other people are saying bad things about you. So you're, you're stuck between these two places, a falsehood, a falsehood about who you are or who you think you need to be, and then a falsehood about what, what you think they think other people are saying about you. And we find ourselves trapped in his lies needing to feel like we need to flatter ourselves or we need other people to flatter ourselves to have peace in our heart. He loves to build you up so that he can tear you down. He loves to steal away the glory from God. Like David, you and me are daily under the pressure of finding rest in in trusting in others, in trusting in ourselves, in trusting in what we've done, and in trusting in our wealth. It's so true for us. We wrestle with the external circumstances and the internal dynamics of our own heart that often leads us to anxiety and not stillness and rest. And we're prone as human beings to find rest in other things, to look for rest in the things that are around us. Maybe for you it's comfort, maybe it's control, maybe it's power, maybe it's influence. But all these things ultimately come to nothing. They're kind of but a vapour. They're like a mirage. They seek to promise something that they do not have the power to deliver on. And so here, David has these external circumstances and these internal dynamics going on in his heart which lead us to rest, that there are many reasons for us to, uh, many reasons for our soul not to be still and silent. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson we see is it is possible for our soul to be still and silent in all circumstances. What we read in the midst of this psalm is the possibility of calm in the midst of the psalm, a sure-footedness Uh, When all the ground around us gives way, a rest and a stillness when your enemies are busy around you working. You're still, you're not doing anything, but everybody around you is working hard to bring your downfall. And in the midst of that is when David declares, my soul waits in silence. He says it in verse 1 and verse 5. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And then again in verse 5, for God alone, O my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from him. Other translations uh, talk about, uh, translate that verse, my soul finds rest, and that's definitely part of the picture here. Uh, But the ESV translates, waits in silence. He is still because of the presence of God. His heart is not moved or trying to do something because God's presence is with him. At first, it might be contradictory to say that, is, that, is, that he is silent because, in fact, in this book, in this, sorry, in this psalm, uh, he's speaking, he's talking. Um, but there's a difference between, uh, you know, uh, between our soul being still and our mouths still talking. It is possible that our mouths can still talk and express uh, how we're feeling, but inside 
feeling composed and still. Last week we looked at Psalm 44, where we're encouraged to pour out our, our requests to the Lord, to pour out what's going on in our heart. And this psalm is certainly not telling you, don't do that. Because this is what David is doing in this psalm. But interestingly, I don't know if you noticed, it's only in verse 12 where God is addressed. The rest of the psalm, he's addressing himself, he's addressing his enemies, and he's addressing the people. So he's talking out. This is where my hope is. My hope is in God. Spurgeon writes of this psalm, It is an eminent work of grace to bring down the will and subdue the affections to such a degree that the whole mind lies before God like a sea beneath the wind, ready to be moved by every breath of his mouth, but free from all inward and self-caused emotions. So also from all power to be moved by anything other than the divine will. David expresses this by saying that his inner soul can never be shaken, can never be moved. No matter what's going on the outside, inside his soul is like a lovely little duck pond. It may be uh, huge waves bashing against his, himself and his circumstances and even into his mind, but because his hope's in God, it's like a duck pond. God speaks. Well, I don't know if you have the, remember the picture of, of Jesus just speaking and the wind and the waves with the disciples in the boat just becoming still. Well, this is the picture here, that because God has spoken, his soul is absolutely still. So in the midst of life, in the midst of life's most challenging circumstances, our soul is able to be still, unvexed, at peace. But how? How can this take place? Well, I've already alluded to that, to how it might take place. But let me tell you how it doesn't take place. And this we see in verses 9 and 10, if you have a look at them. Don't trust in men or money to bring stillness or silence to your soul. I don't know about you, but one of the re many reasons why... I find it difficult to be still, is that I trust in myself and not in God. I want to be in control. I want to make an impact on the outcome of any particular situation. And restraining action is a very difficult thing to do. And, re and, and, and that can be like outward action or inward action in terms of our minds, where our minds are going. And maybe for you, it's a, a personal relationship or uh, you want to influence or maybe something at work that you, you want to see happen, um, or, or maybe it's um, something to do with um, uh, um, a, uh, um, a house or whatever it might be, the circumstances that are, that are going on in your life. And, and you're tempted to look to other things other than God to put your trust into, to try and work it out yourself. Well, David says, look, there's two, two big ones that he brings up. Don't trust in other people and don't trust in money. The false foundation of rest, putting your tr trust and your rest in men. He says this, Surely the low-born are but a breath, and the high-born but a lie. If weighed on the scale, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. 
David says, look, don't put your trust in other people. I've experienced it, he says. I've put my trust in other people around me and they have let me down. Maybe you've experienced that. And let's be honest, if we, were in, if we think of ourselves, we've let other people down, so we know that we can't be trusted to be the p- person of trust in others. Think about Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. The people are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, in the highest. And then only a few days later, crucify him, crucify him. And this is the Son of God, of which whom there was nothing in him that would cause them to to say these things. Whereas for ourselves, we realize there are many things that people may say against us that actually are true and may bring us low. He says, it doesn't matter if these are low-born people, salt-of-the-earth people, um, or high-born people of influence. They are but a breath or a lie. They have no substance to them. They cannot deliver on the rest that your soul, soul so desires. Again, uh, maybe you're putting your trust in your life on another person. Maybe it's your spouse or your fiance or your son or your daughter or your mother or your father. Maybe it's friends that you're putting your trust into. It's so very easily done and so very subtle because we want to trust our friends and of course we do but it is not the source of, it's not going to be the source that's going to bring inner peace to our lives. It says, if they were weighed in the balance, they are nothing, only a breath and a wind in verse 9. So don't trust in people, but also don't trust in money. David says the same thing about trusting in money. We're all tempted to think that the more money we have, the more opportunity we have at being at peace or at least keeping um, the wolves at bay. If we've got a big bank balance, maybe some of life's difficulties could be avoided because we've got that money in the bank as a nest egg. It's kind of a, a money becomes like a shelter from life's troubles. But David says, no, I've got all the money that a kingdom can buy. Let me tell you, wealth will not stop trouble coming and it will not bring you peace in particular here David talks about the oppressing of the poor here where people at at at, uh, at best um, um, are are uh, deal things badly or at worst are wicked in terms of their choices towards other people he says do not do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stole goods Though your riches increase, do not yet set your heart on them. And um, for us, we have to battle with kind of the sanitized version of greed, where we don't necessarily get our hands dirty with direct oppression of the poor and the needy, but the way in which we live our lives and the way in which we use the money which God has given us to steward is, is always firstly for ourselves and secondly for other people. We don't sacrifice to give our money away unless we have had our needs met. We don't want to find ourselves in a position where our bank balance has gone down um, so much that we might be at risk um, of of, of some tragedy happening in, in, in our lives. And so, again, this is a challenge for us. It's, it's not that we maybe directly oppress the poor, but just in our choices, we have a lack of generosity with ourselves. Think about the example of even just tithing. 
How do you approach tithing? Is tithing the first fruits that you do? Where you think, I just want to glorify God. First of all, my life is a life of worship. I want to use my money to worship God and to show anybody who would, who would watch and see a way in which I use money that God is first in, in my life. Or do you make sure all your bills are paid first and then work out what you can give out of the rest? Do you see what I mean? Even to God, forget the poor, we don't often treat him as we should. We use our money for ourselves first and then secondly, for God or for others. We put our trust in money. Look after number one first, then look after other people. David says, no, don't do that. Be generous. Don't oppress the poor. Be generous with the things that God has given to you. And so, we don't trust in men and we don't trust in money. What do we trust in then? Well, lesson number four, and this is really, I think, the central theme of the whole passage. It starts, and it talks about this in verse one and two and verse five. For God alone, my soul waits in silence, for, for my hope is from him. David uses this word six times. It can mean fully, truly, alone, or only do I rest. You'll see in verse 4, verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. And there is, this word alone is the absolute key to this. It isn't, for in God I trust. Well, you can trust in God and trust in money. You can just trust in the thing that will give you and deliver what you need uh, at any one point in time. And probably that gets to the heart of the trouble why we don't often have peace and rest in our heart. It's because we're functional believers in God. In a sense, we say, okay, when God can meet it directly, I trust in you. But when I can meet it or others can meet it or money can meet it, I'm going to go to the, the place which is going to meet it instantly and to take away the anxiety from my soul in that moment. But the reality is that it is in God alone. Again, Spurgeon says of this, they trust not God at all who do not trust him alone. Alone. There's a primacy and exclusivity to where our hope should be placed. If we want the sort of life, no matter what comes, our heart and mind are not going to be disturbed. David gives us the reason in this why in God alone he trusts because he describes and has his salvation and his glory. And then he uses some um, figurative examples, some um, metaphors describe that salvation. He calls him a rock and a fortress, a refuge. It's only when we know that God has taken care of all our needs, our, our very... Um, destination, or the, the very care of our inward soul, forget our external circumstances, but the very um, uh, health of our, 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 our being, can we trust him in all the situations that we, he would lead us and take us into? Verses 2 and 6 says, God is my salvation. That is the reason why he's able to hope in God alone, trust in God alone. And for us, this is a gospel issue. This is because for us, we trust in Christ alone. 
He's the one who has bought our salvation. He's the one that because we know he's done all that he needs to do through our faith and trust in him, we receive all the grace that we need, that the promise that God will take care of us in every situation, even death itself, means that no matter what comes along, we can be rooted and sure-footed. Every sort of other source of rest and stillness is an imposter that we need to put to death. Don't let it linger. Don't allow them to, to dwell side by side. No, God alone asks you, God, God asks you to trust him alone. Again, maybe you find your rest in comfort or in solitude or in provisions or in retreat or in your family. These are all imposters who will rob you of the real peace that you can have, the real stillness of your soul that you can only find in trusting in Christ alone. All other confidences are brought to naught when we gaze upon Christ, his beauty and what he has done for us. We cannot be double-hearted or double-willed in this matter if we want that stillness. Maybe if you struggle to have that stillness, it might likely tell us that there are other things that we are putting our trust in. David gives a couple of metaphors here that I think are worth of exploring just to help us see why it's so important and potentially easy and definitely right that we put our trust in God alone. The first one is that he is a rock. That comes in verse 2 and, verses, and verse 6. Truly, he is my rock, my salvation. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is the mighty rock, my refuge. The very mention of a rock would awaken grateful memories in David's mind. For he had often fled to the caves in the rocks um, when he was being pursued by Saul and also by Absalom. And as he writes this, we think he's in a rock. That God is like a rock. God is the only real source of protection from the danger of his enemies around him. God is the all-sufficient rock which never fails. Let me hide myself in thee, he says in another psalm. For God is our refuge and our strength in the storms of life. Our life, like David, is hidden with God, in, in God through Christ. Christ is the doorway into the rock in which is God. And we rest. God is our protection. Because we're joined to Christ, then the accusations of the enemies, the flattery and the falsehood, they just roll off like the water off a duck's back. They are not able to rob us of the inner stillness because Christ has given us the rest that can never be taken away. We hope in him. And God gives us a, uh, Christ gives us a rest that no other can provide. The, the raging storms of the wind and the rain of life may rage around us, but in the cave, under the protection of God, we will not be moved. We will not be shaken. Under the shadow of his wings, we feel safe and secure. The second picture he gives here is that, uh, that, God, that God is a fortress. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Verse 2. 
He is my fortress. I will not be shaken in verse 6. Not only does the believer dwell in the cavernous rock who is God, going through Christ into there, but he dwells like David in God as a brave warrior who's fighting. He's brave and defiant. He's fighting from the strong tower or fortress. The picture here is a battle of, of war. It's raging around. And yet David is fighting safe and secure because he knows nobody can enter the tower. Nobody can ram the fortress. It is not possible for him to be taken down in that safe place of the fortress because the, for his fortress is God himself. We too ourselves uh, can see our lives like a good soldier. We're brave and busy in the spiritual warfare of the kingdom of God, fighting for our own um, hope and peace and for, other, for the, uh, trying to encourage and build others up and protect them from the enemy and also going out to wage war against Satan for the lives of those who don't yet know Christ. It's a serious battle that's taking place. We put ourselves out into vulnerable positions where we may feel that Satan can um, uh, affect us or, or, or defeat us, but we can never be defeated, even if our circumstances turn bad. And we just think about all the Christian martyrs throughout the year whose circumstances um, uh, turned out bad. But one thing that we see is they never regretted ever being involved in the fight. In fact, they were at peace that, God, that, that, that they could, could, their salvation and their hope in God could never be robbed from them. And that was one of the reasons why they're able to go to the very ends of the earth with the gospel, knowing that their very life was in danger. So with confidence, we can face Satan, the enemy, the one who wants to rob, take our life, to rob our joy, to remove our peace, to take away our rest. We can do it with great confidence. Why? Because we are in the fortress who is God. You can never be taken down. You're safe in that place. That's why David says, I shall never be shaken. I'm in the fortress. I shall never be moved. Look, our personal weakness might cause us to be somewhat moved. Uh, but when we're in Christ, yeah, we will never be shaken. Our life might feel like it goes up in bobs and up and down, but we are safe and anchored in Christ. We just sang a song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in who? Jesus' name. This is, this is what David's saying here. This is a lesson I've learned. Don't trust in anything else. Don't be stupid enough to trust in yourself. Don't be stupid enough to trust in other people. Don't be stupid to trust in, to trust in your wealth and your possessions. Okay, our time is nearly up. So finally, lesson number five. God is good. Listen to him. David finishes with his final thoughts in verses 11 to 12. Um, and speaks of, a, uh, of, of, speaks of the way, he speaks of the way in which God speaks a better word that, that penetrates his heart to bring in confidence in the midst of the situation that he finds himself in. He says this, One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, unfailing love. 
and you reward everyone according to what they have done. I'm quoting Spurgeon quite a lot, but he, he, he says some good stuff. Um, he says this, So immutable is God that he need not speak twice as though he had changed, so infallible that one utterance suffices, or, or, he, or he cannot err, so impotent that his solitary word achieves all its designs. We speak often and say nothing. God speaks once and utters eternal wisdom. All our speaking may end in sound, but he speaks and it is done. He commands and it is steadfast. So he says, God speaks once, but the same word keeps on coming back to me day after day. It speaks once, twice, three times, four times, five times. It keeps on speaking to my soul and establishing. What does he hear? He hears this. Power belongs to God. What a... What an encouragement that is in the midst of the storm. God is able to meet your every need. He's able to sustain you in the circumstances. Why? Because all power belongs to him. The second thing he says is this, that his unfailing love, that this power will not be wielded in such a way to harm you, but he loves you and it'll be wielded in such a way that it gives you strength and does not crush you. It's for our good. And then finally, it says, you reward everyone according to what they have done. And maybe this seems like we receive what we deserve. But the reality is that we are rewarded according to not what we have done, but what he has done, Jesus. We receive mercy. This is about mercy. That when you think about your life and the fact that we don't always trust in God and our heart is not always stilled in him, that because of Christ, he rewards us because of Christ's righteousness. There's even hope and encouragement when we, our hearts are not stilled. And they aren't like the duck pond. And actually, it's more like we're paddling. Um, you know, it might look s- still on the top, on the surface, but we're paddling underneath um, like crazy. God doesn't reward us according to what we do, but according to what Christ has done because our hope is in him. So how is it possible for our soul to be still and silent in times of trouble? Hope in God alone. Put aside all other confidences. Put aside all other fake rests. Take off what we, um, uh, take hold of what we already have in our salvation in Christ, which is unshakable. Continually putting our trust and our faith in God. This is the only way to have the stillness and the silence that David speaks about. And even when we fail, God is merciful. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can learn from someone like David who experienced many troubles and difficulties in his life. And we ourselves recognize that our lives are full of difficulty and trouble. But we want to be at peace with you. We want to be at rest with you. We want to have hope in you. Lord, would you be our refuge? Would you be our rock? Would we see that all other reasons to hope are fake? Let us trust in you this day, we pray. Amen.